to be very clear, like I don't want to be a scholar of imposition, right? Because that is basically the whole colonialist impulse or the orientalist impulse, as Edward Said talks about. I want to be a scholar of conversation, of dialogue, of humble offering and say, okay, well, I've learned this. This might be interesting. Um, you don't have to take it, right? I'm not forcing you to take it, but you know, the principles of environmental justice could be really interesting to what's going on in my teacher's community of the Govardhan eco-village. And they work with villagers and tribal people and help them to kind of settle back into their indigenous place. You know, it's like, yeah, some of that is kind of maybe part of the principles of justice. I don't know. It's just like having, opening up a space for a conversation, but for me never coming from a space of like, okay, but I have the real stuff here. Like we have to understand and understand and approach people in their, where they come from and their source, like look at their source and respect their source of who they are and their wisdom to be able to have these conversations. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I speak with Professor Chris Ficci. What sets Chris apart is that he manages to stand balanced authentically in a couple of worlds that don't always, shall we say, play well together. The academy in the world of devoted Hindus, being born a Catholic and then going on to be a monk in the Gaudiya Vaishnav lineage before embarking to earn a PhD from Union Theological Seminary, known for its strong social justice message. I think we had a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. Hope you enjoy it too. So thanks so much for doing this. Um, I'm going to jump in with something you posted on Facebook today. It's a quote from Paul Kings North. The very fact that we have a word for nature is evidence that we do not regard ourselves as part of it. Unpack that because there is so much in that. Well, I, I've been reading his work for a little while and I'm kind of finding myself more and more in his kind of shoes in many different types of ways. Just for those who don't know, Paul Kingsnorth is an English writer, a novelist, um, a, a recovering environmentalist is how he defines himself. And um, this particular text is called the Dark Mountain Manifesto, which is part of this project that he's been working on for the last like 10 years. Basically, he was an activist, fairly prominent from what I understand in the UK, um, and just kind of reached that wall of ecological grief and decided that what he wanted to do was not save the world, but try to find a smaller patch of of place that he could feel some connection to. Um, and and kind of in the course of that, he's come to understanding, which is kind of an understanding that many cultures, including Hindu cultures, have known about, continued to know about for thousands of years, is that we're not separate from the natural world. Uh, and that we've invented this concept of nature because we've built a civilization. European Eurocentric civilization on top of this idea that we're separated from nature. So just the fact that we say nature implies our disconnection. In fact, I'm like trying to teach some of my students at Iona college where I teach a course, religion and the natural world (laughs) that um, really we're not separate. And I think there's so much within Dharma traditions, within Hindu traditions would speak to that too, which I'm sharing with my students. There's so much in that statement to me that it's very hard. It's always been hard for me to try to use English. And I don't really know any other languages that well. I speak some Spanish and I French and I know some travelers, Hindi and enough Sanskrit to get myself in into trouble with mantras and stuff like to understand what's going on, but not like really at a deep academic level, know what's going on. And you also have it, I think with animal, just the very word animal. You know, it's always humans and then animals. And I've taken to using the phrase like non-human animals 
but but when you do things like that, it feels to me like you're you're always up on a soapbox and it gets tiring after a while. But but I feel yeah. like that's part of the work, you know, that we have to go go through or get to for us to remedy our situation in some way. Yeah, it's very much a disentangling from all of these things that we didn't ask for, but that is what our civilization is built upon. Um, and there's really this, uh, and it's important. I think part of the work I do as a scholar is being part of this movement that is going back to really, it, I mean, I, I teach as much as I know about indigenous traditions. And I include, of course, Hindu traditions in this because I've really been learning quite a bit from um, some Hindu scholars that this category of the indigenous is something that very much belongs to the Dharmic traditions as well. I mean, does that concept of indigenous doesn't just mean like Native yeah. Americans? That's often how we understand it, but you know, I mean, it, and this goes to what Paul Kingsnorth is doing is being of a place, and this is something Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about in her work, braiding sweetgrass of. Uh, about being going back to place, going back home. Um, Wendell Berry yeah, yeah, also yeah. talks about this. Quote. Yeah. Um, but it's and like in a sense, like in Robin Wall Kimmerer's work in Braiding Streetcraft, she talks about okay, well, this category of indigenous really it's it's a life, it's a, it's a kind of experience, type of consciousness, being in place. In fact, really, the goal of this movement that we're undertaking is for all of us to kind of return back to. Um, some kind of indigenous understanding, even if it's quite different and quite warped by the past 500 years of colonization and things like that. But still there's that necessity for us to like be grounded back into so, place. So do you think though, I mean, it, to play devil's advocate here, that th th is there an indigenous place that the Christian tradition to focus on Europe and that strand yeah. Is there a place where that is indigenous? Because the common word, common use of the word indigenous, it, I think I'm getting the sense the way you're using it, the common phrasing, the common use of it is actually different. It's not just native to a place. It's rooted in place. So is there a place that like that Judaism is rooted, that Christianity is rooted? And then how can, and then sorry, sorry. Yeah. And then it just occurred to me, is there a place there where Hinduism is rooted or can it become rooted outside of a, a homeland? Yeah. And these are, these are really compelling questions, I think. Um, and I'm always careful to try to understand the fact that I think I'm trying to just like share from Robin Wall Kimmerer's perspective about kind of, not that like, uh, you know, not that white people should claim indigenous identity, but just kind of the broader concept of it. So to your question, um, yes, I think like I, for example, in terms, and I kind of think of indigenous in one sense, like the, the category itself as being like rooting, rooting in place. So for, and this, I don't know, this totally answers your question, but for Catholic students that I teach at Iona College, I try to root, and a good portion of them are pretty uh, earnest Catholics. Uh, and I try to root them in the Franciscan tradition and to say, actually, this is, this is kind of the eco-theological place. Um, my colleague, Sarah Jolina Walcott does a lot of work on this and she does a lot of work on helping people, especially white body people to kind of rediscover their ancestries and, and a lot of the skeletons that are in the closet when you do look at your ancestries um, coming from various European backgrounds. Um, you know, she could speak a lot more eloquently to this question. I think even more specifically, some of the questions about where, you know, things that have affected the Abrahamic traditions, you know, where they have emerged from in different places. And I think that that's, 
each each kind of person in each community has to look at the roots of where they come from. Um, and I, for people who come from European backgrounds, that's a mixture of all kinds of different things. Um, you know, to know our kind of know our history and know the place that we came from. Um, I tried it, for example, when I teach my students, I just taught a course on the Bhakti movement at DePaul University, which was my first chance to teach a Hinduism course, Hinduism themed course. Of course, Bhakti movement is kind of straddles some different boundaries, but it's, you know, and this is the thing I would tell my students, we have to remember this is, this is rooted in India. This comes from the subcontinent of India, culturally, religiously to the, just the very bone marrow of the people who created this tradition is from that subcontinent. We have to remember that. And I talked a little bit as well, this recent book called White Utopias by Amanda J. Lucia, which she looked at kind of the contemporary bhakti movement, things like bhakti fest, burning man, people who practice yoga and basically are Hindu. And I remember if you, I've heard you say this before to met some of our conversations where, you know, people who are basically Hindu, but don't acknowledge. They don't know. Acknowledge it where it comes. They, don't, they don't, they're Hindu in practice and belief even, but they just don't even know it. Yeah. And I'm just always, and again, this is things that I've been learning a lot of blind spots that I've been seeing in my own journey on this that we have to be very, very particular when we're teaching things like the Bhakti movement to say, this is from India. This is an Indian religion. This is Hinduism. This is it's a real thing. It is, it is a tradition, a very special tradition. And the, but of course, you know, as those of us who study Bhakti know she, she you know, kind of frame Bhakti as this movement presence that moves throughout the world. So she moves very freely and is not always beholden to certain boundaries. I, I love the quote from the great, translator and poet A.K. Ramanujan, who describes bhakti as that which is against ordinary expected loyalties. Mm, that's so, good. Um, so she can't be tied down and sure, surely she can take root all over the world as you know, part of the community that I'm from. The International Society for Krishna Consciousness community is, you know, has we have temples all over the place, basically. And it's a, a genuine genuine expansion of the of the movement of the tradition but always you know the roots go back so deep and are so profound that i think part of doing that work of rooting back into this indigenous space is just making sure that people know where this came from and what are who who are the voices of this tradition because that is the thing that i've seen in the academy is one of the fundamental issues who is mm. speaking and who is being represented and, and learning a lot yeah. every day Let's, I mean, let, let's come back to who gets to speak for Hinduism in the academy. But but before we go there, uh, to play off the indigenous part of it. So I'll just put it bluntly. How did a white guy from Michigan first come to become a Hindu monk and now a professor of religion? Well, okay. Um, I, I realize we've gone over this and this this story could could last for an entire podcast episode, but what's the nutshell version to put your, your perspective, you know, in a place for listeners? Yeah, no, I'd love to tell. I mean, that's also, I was just reading in Paul King's notes as we've forgotten how to tell stories, which um, I was raised Catholic, Roman Catholic in Detroit, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, this little suburb called Harper Woods um, on the East side of the city. And um pretty normal Catholic upbringing, nothing dramatic, you know, confirmed, baptized, at least I'm going to heaven, you know? And, um, but when I was at university of Michigan doing my undergrad, 
I was taking these amazing courses on Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, Donald Lopez is one of the prominent Buddhist scholars in the country and just like taking courses. And he was telling us all that we were all to be Buddhas one day. And it was just, it was just like a beautiful (laughs) experience. And I wanted to learn how to meditate. So um, at that time, the members of the ISKCON or Hare Krishna community in Detroit, there were a couple young men who were monks and they doing programs on the Michigan campus. And I started to go to their programs and learning the Bhagavad Gita and learning the Hare Krishna mantra meditation. Um, It was really exactly what I was looking for. Um, And the Bhagavad Gita is that book that never stops talking back to you too. And when you're reading it um, and never stops revealing different depths to it. So it's answering a lot of questions I was having, just you know, seeking kind of truth about reality and spirituality and, you know, definitely not abandoning my Catholic side as I've come to discover, but just building off of it. And um, so these two gentlemen, um, Purusha, who uh, is the husband of Divya, the wonderful owner of Divya's Kitchen. They both own Divya's Kitchen at the Bhakti Center in New York City. If you're looking for good, I And, and uh, just to up. interject, if the listeners of this podcast want to go back into the archives, um, early in the pandemic, uh, we did a two, actually, I believe, episodes like webinars that are on video and audio that you can go back and find on the That's So Hindu archives. Yeah. Great food. Um, and so he was a monk back then. And he was the one who like would spend time with me, was teaching me about the tradition. And it was just very interesting to meet. And he was, a, he's a white guy like me too. And it was very interesting to meet him kind of in his robes and the, and the Sika, the little ponytail hairdo that, that we have with, you know, very actually shouldn't say little ponytail hairdo. It was like very, you know, the kind of sacred wear of the renunciants, which we see kind of across Dharmic traditions. And, um, just was so fascinated. And of course it was a very kind of tumultuous time in my life. Um, as I say, I had a quarter life crisis, which I think is now like complimentary with the youth these days. Um, and I was just really, I was really taken with their monastic lifestyle in a sense as kind of this idea like, Oh, I think I want to try that out, which is like the strangest idea you could have when you're 22 years old. I graduated from Michigan with a filmmaking degree. So I, you know, I know my way around a camera and the mise en but I never wanted to, pursued that professionally. So I had this kind of quarter life crisis and decided very similar to my, my favorite Catholic monk, Thomas Merton, getting called in to the monk life. So I decided to become a monk in the, in the ISKCON, the, the Vaishnav tradition and uh, spent five and a half years doing it. Got up at 4am practically every day of the year and uh, learned so much. It was just such an immersive experience to see a, this a commitment to meditation, to, to service. We were, you know, we are known as kind of the, one of our teachers just once described us as the evangelical Hindus, which I'm not sure if that's a most accurate label, but you know, we have a very forward facing kind of sharing of our culture and New York city was a place to do it. So that was also very unusual being a monk on first Avenue in New York city. Um, and just learned so much, did so much service, fed countless vegetarian meals to folks at New York University, Columbia University, we had our vegetarian club there, we teach Bhagavad Gita classes, even printed a little like DIY Hare Krishna punk newspaper at one point too, and kind of did it all and uh, would distribute the newspapers around the, the East Village. Um, but I just was really, I think I got the bug to want to go back to school, one of the other monks went to Yale Divinity School and I was just so fascinated with what he was doing. And it, uh, uh, unfortunately, one of the downsides sometimes of, of monastic life in the Hare Krishna tradition is you don't get a lot of intellectual 
uh, there's, you might be feeling some need for intellectual nourishment. And I was feeling that and decided to go back to school, went to Union Theological Seminary in New York City, one of the best divinity schools in the world. I had no idea if they were going to accept a lapsed Catholic Hare Krishna monk, and they did. Uh, and then eight years later, I've just finished my PhD. And um, the wonderful thing about union, although I can't claim this for everybody's experience, but for my, my experience, it was really, they gave me a lot of scope to pursue my identity as a Hindu theologian, as a Vaishnav theologian. They gave me the space to discover that, that that's what I very much am as a scholar. That is very much my seva in this world, my, my swadharma is to be a scholar, to be a theologian. And of course, a good mixture of Christianity is still in there. I'm still going to identify as a Catholic in some ways, culturally, even theologically a little bit sometimes. And um, and just really appreciating. There's just such a blessing to do a, that doctoral program there. Um, just the amount. I mean, just the people you study with at Union, Cornell West, Dr. James Cohn. I mean, just the power of the theology that goes to that place. But gave me the frame to understand, like, you know, who I am as a practitioner through that lens as a scholar can actually be really powerful. Some people say when you start to study it, it all falls apart. Well, I mean, if you're not, your faith isn't that strong, it might not happen that way. But just the examples of people, you know, fellow Vaishnav theologians who are really doing amazing, the amazing work, the exact kind of, I think, being the academy and to want to really represent Hinduism, to do it in such a constructive way and just to really open pathways for understanding is the, is the essential element. Um, there's a lot you have to, people have to wrestle through things. I don't have to wrestle through as a scholar that people do to get to that mm -hmm. space, but just feeling a commitment to really trying to represent just the originality, the depth of the traditions of Hinduism. And um, it's a desperate need in so many ways right now in the academic world for people to be stepping up and doing yeah. this work. Wait, let's go down that, down that path. So yeah. what do you, how do you see, I realize you're only formally with, you know, you defended your dissertation back at the start of the pandemic. I remember, um, you yeah. know, so you're just, you know, starting down this path of being the full-time scholar professor. How, so how, what do you see as the issues in terms of who gets to speak for the Hindu tradition within academia today? I really have been learning quite a lot just in the past year. A couple, I'm gonna maybe just shout out a couple of people, especially on social media, these scholars of Hindu Vishwanath, Bhart Parihar, who I think we both know, um, learning a lot just in their perspectives um, in terms of, as I said, like, there's so many connections between scholars do a lot of work around decolonization, right? And we often place, because decolonization is both it, it, many different things. It's a political process. The country's gaining their independence, formal independence, but then you, there's so many deeper layers to it. And so many scholars, you know, thinking just kind of the line Franz Fanon to Walter Mignolo, especially recently, who are saying that this decolonization practice goes, has to go to the level of mind and consciousness too. Um, especially Walter Mignolo talks quite a bit about going back to the indigenous, wherever, what is that original wisdom that has preserved cultures and has created very exquisite theologies for centuries and centuries um, that hasn't totally been snuffed out by colonization. So what are those, uh, 
those types of practices to be able to do decolonization. People you know, look at this in Africa and South America, here in America with Native Americans. Um, and I, I just what I'm particularly learning now is how to kind of understand those deals, those decolonial frames through through the history of India, through the religion of India, which is incredibly complicated. And I'm still just like, I, I you have to be just, I'm in a space where I just have to be kind of open eyes, open ears. Um, certainly not try to like, certainly not try to like impose any kind of misunderstandings I have, which I know is often the tension in the academy is that someone may study Hinduism or an aspect of Hinduism at a distance. And sometimes that's, you know, and that's part in a sense of the scholarly Enterprise is a little bit of critical distance, although I also appreciate people who say that distance is not really possible the way that we try to idealize it. But people can study something about Hinduism from a distance. I've been guilty of this even as a practitioner where you don't really understand what the original inhabitants of a practice or what the original inhabitants of a particular teaching understood. That's That I think is the, the obligation of a scholar of Hinduism is to try to understand as much as possible the original content of the tradition. That's a tall ask because of just the, all the crust and residue ongoing of kind of all these colonial mentalities. One example of this, I really appreciated one of my mentors, David Haberman, who teaches at Indiana University as a scholar of Indian religions. He's also a Sri Vaishnav practitioner. And he wrote this really amazing book called Loving Stones, uh, called Making the Impossible Possible in the Worship of Mount Govardhan. This is his latest book. Um, and he, he just spends a whole chapter on how when these European colonial powers had their kind of most recent encounter with the wisdom of the subcontinent, it very quickly became this imposition that, oh, you're worshiping idols and this is idolatry and this is the most primitive form of religion. Um, and basically just put this terrible curse upon understanding of these traditions in their original voices from in their original content. So he does a lot of work in his book about trying to understand, you know, he's looking at the worship of, of Shalagram Shilas, uh, which are very much important part of the Vaishnav tradition. And these are worship of sacred stones, which come from Mount Govardhan, um, which is near Vrindavan in India. It's very much the understanding these stones, these Shilas are Krishna. So people can worship the stones and they'll adorn them kind of with, as people know, kind of with eyes and looking at it right now, the cover of his book with eyes and the Vaishnav Tilak and to bring out the kind of presence of Krishna in the stone. Um, and he really does a lot of work to say, we need to understand this not as idolatry. We need to throw off that crust, which is terrible and continues to affect a lot of understandings of Hinduism and to actually talk to the practitioners. I really, he's such a great example of someone whose research is just going and talking to people who do the worship because you'd be, some people would be surprised how exquisite their theology is. Like their lived theology is something which is, I mean, in terms of like ecology is just, I mean, it's it. It's like, they get it. They get the fact that God is right there in a stone and it doesn't bother them. And they actually <laughs> like express devotion and revolve their own lives. Like that is not, that is the exact opposite of a primitive idea. Like that is to me, like the most advanced eco-theology in the world. Um, so I'm always, I, again, he's just such a, to your question, just such a great example of someone who goes to the source and it's, and I know like, 
going to the source, it can sound very idealistic and very kind of, you know, all of us scholars try not to get into too much of this binary, pure type of stuff. But, but still, I think that's the obligation we have to do. You have to try to go to the source as much as possible. That requires a lot of historical analysis of how colonization has ruptured the source or obscured the source. But that doesn't mean you have to, like, we have to go to the source as much as we possibly can. You mentioned you did your PhD at Eugene Theological Seminary for people who don't know is in New York City, it's uptown. Um, it's got a strong social justice leaning. It's very well known for that. If people yeah. are, know the name Cornell West, which was mentioned, you, you get a sense of that. How do you see, how do you see, we'll, we'll skip over Cornell West and Harvard as a subject. Um, how do you see contemporary Western ideas of social justice intersecting with Hindu ideals and contemporary practice? This has been such a big question. It was a big part of my dissertation. I don't know. I love that and the opportunity to talk about it because it's just I I I'm very much, you know, I think as a scholar and a public intellectual, you have to be um, you know, practice your humility, but also, you know, throw your ideas well, out for I, people. I, mean, I bring it up, I mean, because it is yeah. a big topic and I like I like big questions. I, t- I tend towards them. I mean, my wife accuses me of being entirely theoretical and not practical, which I disagree with, but um, I'm bringing it up because in the, at least in the public discussion of Hinduism and politics yeah. and contemporary life, at least the subset of people that we interact with at HAF, there's a little bit of a, of a tension between Western ideals of social justice and Hinduism and Hinduism yeah. sometimes gets a bad rap. And I think social justice people get a bad rap by some very earnest and well-meaning, or I trust well-meaning Hindus. So you're, you're, I think yeah. you, you stand with a foot in two camps authentically. So yeah. how do you do that? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it's at a fundamental level, it's really about trying to understand the resonances between two different realities, but also to respect the differences too, I think is this constant dance that I'm trying to do. Um, so I, I think about this in terms of I'm trained. So my union training allowed me to become, in a sense, like a participant in the liberation theology tradition, right? Because that's kind of at the core of of unions theological approach. It's a broad category. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just I we're for listeners that don't know what, what's the the nutshell. Yeah. What does what liberation theology refer to? Uh, it's basically this tradition, kind of emerged out of the Catholic tradition, uh, but from a couple of different places in the late 60s, Gustavo Gutierrez, Father Gustavo Gutierrez, who uh, wrote this book, A Theology of Liberation, talking about how the real, the real purport of the gospel is that Jesus was always with the most poor and the most suffering and the most oppressed. So if you're accurately following the gospels and accurately being a Christian, that should be your primary concern which necessarily also implies understanding the, in a sense, the political and social conditions, why people are in poverty. Um, and he, he talked a lot about how one must kind of do theology first before you write it. So very much the kind of praxis, how are you ministering to people in the world? Uh, he is, he's kind of considered the father of the tradition, um, at least the one who kind of, as a scholar, kind of codified the grassroots with the people were realizing. Uh, James Cohn was my professor at Union Theological Seminary, wrote some of the first books in the category of Black theology in America, Black theology and Black power, Black theology of liberation. 
um, and the kind of the category of black theology as we know it came from his work in the late 60s too. And again, always, you know, trying to speak for the voice of the people, what is really, Dr. Cohn always would tell us, if you can't explain your theology to the person on the corner, you're not doing it correctly. So um, I, you know, I'm, and I'm still, I still identify very much as a Catholic in many ways. Me, the always, the, the teacher is Thomas Merton, and he was someone who was so committed to, especially later in his life, to justice for Black people in America, justice for Native Americans, meaning he was beginning to get little glimmers of ecological justice, too. Um, so I like that, unfortunately, that concept of justice. And then there's also my Dharma practice as a Vaishnav. So I've been kind of, and, and for me, it's kind of like just formed in this, this justice, this movement towards action, towards care, not as this thing which is wholly different from Dharma. And of course, I, I'm certainly not going to offer a one-size-fits-all definition of Dharma because that's impossible, but we understand it as kind of these, in one sense, I would always kind of come back to this sense that it is what binds the universe together is Dharma. And that is certainly all of these, you know, law codes and ethical systems and just the question of how we're in relationship to each other. And, and hopefully that extends out to relationship to, you know, our creaturely friends too, and all other living beings. So, and, and you could possibly translate justice in that way too, as kind of a sense of cohesion, a sense of care. There's a lot of these common resonances between the two practices, as it were, if you're justice making or practicing your Dharma at the core, I think you are participating in some kind of service, very selfless service towards other living beings to care for them, to contribute to their flourishing, to understand we're all connected together. I think this is kind of fundamental, fundamental message of Bhakti in the Bhagavad Gita. But also this just I've learned and this is kind of an example of blind spots where, you know, I've just been in settings where I've had, you know, fellow colleagues tell us like justice stuff. Really, man, like where are you coming from with that? And there's like a spirit of like, is this really, is this really appropriate to be foregrounding this in discussions of Hinduism? And I've learned to kind of take a step back, not entirely from my, my feeling that there's a lot of similarities, but then also to say, okay, well, we can think about these common desires we have for justice, what is behind justice, and look for their resonances within Dharmic traditions of Hinduism. Um, I don't, you know, karma might be one example, but karma is very complicated. We tend to simplify karma um, in so many ways. Uh, but just that sense, like I always, you know, as I think an example of this too, I always go back to this is the Chipko women and the way that they hugged the trees and protected the trees uh, in their movement to try to you know, prevent their, their ecosystem, their indigenous home from being mined and destroyed. So the Chipko women would basically hug around a tree, get two or three from a tree and just like say to the miners, you're going to have to kill us if you want to kill this tree. And it was just this, this incredible movement that did a lot. Not, I mean, again, all these, there are so many challenges in sustaining movements, but you know, it's such a, for me, it's such a major example of a main example of how here's Dharma practice. Here's we're caring so much about these trees would give our lives to them again. Like, like that is not some primitive thing. That's the highest theology in the world. Um, but also you could, I mean, that's, that's kind of my question is like, okay, but then also could like this frame of justice or climate justice or talking about interspecies justice or rights of nature like some of these concepts we have which have come out of like the western academy like the, it's like how might they fit in this picture can they fit you know kind of the first question and i think always again you want to try to respect what the source is saying first and to discover the layers of that 
And if there's a way that we can understand the Dharma concepts in and of, of their own source, and again, this is where you know we need to learn the languages, especially that's one of my biggest blind spots around this. But but then gaining that, we have to start first with the understanding of what people mean by their practices of Dharma, and then we can see really if we can have a friendly offering of saying, okay, maybe this justice concept might illustrate something about your practice, which you might find interesting, you might find compelling. We have to continue to do that work, but it's that's to be very clear. Like, I don't want to be a scholar of imposition, right? Because that is basically the whole colonialist impulse or the orientalist impulses Edward Said talks about. I want to be a scholar of conversation, of dialogue, of humble offering and say, okay, well, I've learned this. This might be interesting. Um, you don't have to take it, right? I'm not forcing you to take it, but you know, the principles of environmental justice could be really interesting to what's going on in my teacher's community of the Govardhan eco-village. And they work with villagers and tribal people and help them to kind of settle back into their indigenous place. You know, it's like, yeah, some of that is kind of maybe part of the principles of justice. I don't know. It's just like having, opening up a space for a conversation, but for me, never coming from a space of like, okay, but I have the real stuff here. Like we have to understand and understand and approach people in their, where they come from and their source, like look at their source and respect their source of who they are and their wisdom to be able to have these conversations. So let's take the discussion back downtown, literally um, and figuratively, I suppose um, down back to the Bhakti center down in East village of Manhattan and the sacred ecology forum that I know you're part of. Can you tell people about what's going on with that? And what was inspiration? So sacred ecology forum, um, it is myself and my dear friends, um, Allegra from Yale, Gopal Patel, we know from Bhumi, um, and our friend Vinit Chander, who's the head of the Hindu religious life program at Princeton. Um, and one of the kind of doing this great work on Hindu chaplaincy, and really trying to establish a base for that in universities in America. Our, we have a common teacher, Radhna Swami, um, and he asked us to develop basically a kind of an ecological initiative for the Bhakti Center. Part of the Bhakti Center is developing and kind of exploring spaces for social initiatives. And, um, and Radhna Swami has been someone who has really been amplifying the kind of the really beautiful eco-theology of our tradition in many ways for many years. And he's helped to create this Govardhan eco-village project in Maharashtra, just north of Mumbai. Um, So yeah, and he asked us to do this and we've been just kind of developing it for the past few years, um, really connecting with people to these eco-sanghas, which we've been doing monthly. Um, If you go to sacredecologyforum.org, you can sign up for our mailing list. And we right now we're doing these eco-sanghas, which are monthly gatherings in which we talk about, as kind of how Radhana Swami instructed us to do, is to say, take issues that people are dealing with in relation to our climate emergency and connect them to our tradition, to the Bhakti tradition, to the tradition of the Bhagavad Purana. What, What does our tradition say? in relation to this <laughs> uh, kind of unprecedented moment of emergency that we're facing? Like, how does it speak not just to people's thoughts about it, but but kind of holistically, what are they experiencing? So we do different eco-sanghas and we, um, it's, you know, it's, it's sense sometimes it can be informative talking about climate change, but oftentimes it's very much like a pastoral conversation that gives us a space to really talk about different feelings, see how this yoga of devotion helps us to really root ourselves back into 
being good citizens of earth and, and also actions. We try to kind of rotate the eco-sanghas between some more conversation, kind of informative types of things, the particular topic, and then we'll rotate the next month and talk about actions that we can take, because that's something we're really, really, I feel like the next evolution, we feel the next evolution of the forum is, is trying to find connections to people really doing the work in the grassroots way. But the, well, the unique thing we're offering is at the lens of the bhakti tradition. Um, and by extension, a lot of the ecological wisdom of Hinduism as well, uh, always trying to better represent that space in our various professional work and the work that we do. And to say that the, the practice bhakti in such, we I mean, were actually doing it properly. You become very selfless. You become very connected. You become very compassionate. Um, it's not that you float off into the spiritual world. You actually become really rooted back into yourself and into who you are as a soul inhabiting this body and understanding, uh, relating to people through this practice of devotion, which is not just like mere charity or not mere, uh, even not mere friendship. It's this deep connection, right? When you're devoted to someone or somebody, you want to like the Chipko, the women of the Chipko movement, you want to practically give your life. <laughs> that sounds intense, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's about these deep relational bonds that we have with the divine, with Krishna that are reflected throughout every aspect of reality and every aspect you know, the, the bonds of relationship that call us to each other as human beings and as planetary beings all come from that original, as we understand it, that original bond of devotion from Krishna. So there's a lot, I mean, and, you know, we're trying to figure out, I also do a lot of some other work with, with the larger ISKCON community in terms of getting temples or develop, trying to develop kind of a whole system for uh, Hare Krishna temples to green themselves um, and to do more ecologically sustainable or regenerative types of practices. Um, it's hard work because it's, it's, and I, you know, I think we both know this just from our kind of common colleagues who work in organizations like green faith. Like it is very difficult at times to get religious communities to sign on to earth care or creation care uh, to put it into practice. So I think sometimes we're, we're good at talking about the theory of it to go to what your partner said, the theory of it and put it into practice is another. It is. Another challenge. So, yeah. so if people want to participate in these these meetings that you're having, Sacred Ecology Forum, you're doing them all online now, obviously. I imagine things are... At the moment, yeah. I mean, we have been doing them for some time in the Bhakti Center space out in the East Village. And of course, we've been doing them. We've had a good series of them. Um, this is in the last year. Yeah, so they're all online. So basically you go to the Sacred Ecology Forum website, sacredecologyforum.org. Sacred Ecology Forum is all one word. Um, and you can sign up for a mailing list and that's where you find out. We'll send you the link for the Ecosungas. We do them once a month right now, every Tuesday. And we're just continuing to think about how we uh, really scale up the service that we're doing because we really believe it's such an important voice. Um, and just the work we do professionally, each in our own lives, we see how people are very receptive to and then the whole message of bhakti, because um, it's just I, I like I like to think of ecology not not just as nature, but um, you know the ways that we relate to each other. And bhakti is you know it's both a theology, it's kind of a theology in its own kind of ecology in a way, just even for the sense of how we should relate to each other, which has serious implications for the rest of the world. 
Um, so we're just truly just trying to cultivate ways to help people give people as we're trying to figure out our way forward and we're just groping in the dark right now, what's to come. Those of us who really kind of practice bhakti feel a sense of, of rooting and care and just a sense of purpose. You know, I think it comes from any spiritual, serious spiritual practice. So that's, that's what we feel we can kind of, you know, it's a unique lens and we don't, you know, just to amplify the whole lens of bhakti upon everything we're experiencing ecologically right now. I understand Facebook tells me I apparently a Facebook snooper of your work. You're doing don't believe anything Facebook does. Not my mind. Right, I, I won't I won't mention all the all the sports comments. But I know you're doing something uh, the climate anticipation project. Tell people about this website, podcast, what's going on? Yeah. This is just about to uh gestate. Um I've, so my research project, I did my dissertation on, is on this concept of anticipatory community, uh, which I first discovered in the work of Larry Rasmussen, who was a, uh, he's a Christian theologian from the Lutheran tradition. He taught at Union Seminary for many, many years, did his PhD there. You can still find his dissertation, like somewhere in the library. Um, and he wrote about in his book, Earth Honoring Faith, Religious Ethics in a New Key. And he talks about these anticipatory communities as communities which are kind of reinventing not necessarily, well, not reinventing the wheel, but kind of doing what Paul Kingsnorth is giving a, a good example of, of this, or people like Wendell Berry, or just anyone who's really rooted in place about creating a sense of community where you can redefine, redefine our ethical relations to creation, um, to kind of retell the stories that we need to retell. Um, and I, I love this part of his writing. He says to expose the fault lines of modernity. So it has a kind of a prophetic edge to it. Um, really, I mean, and again, this is, the, I'm careful in my own scholarship around this, never to like in, impose this, this category of anticipatory community, but I, I always offer it as a type of frame for people to think about the communal work they're doing right now, especially around the climate emergency and to say, we must anticipate the way forward. This is a, a human impulse um, that we're guided to anticipate the way forward by our very DNA when these particularly intense moments in history in which we have to do it more intensely, it's very important that we create communities that can do that work, which does require uh, in one sense, a kind of a conscious stepping back from what Thomas Merton would call the mass man reality, or just a, a step back from the various insanities that we are entangled in. But always, I think, with the intention of building networks of, of support with each other. Um, this, I think, I'm hoping this is this next serious phase in our human evolution is kind of scaling back and creating networks of more resilient, regenerative communities, because I think that's what many of us would like to do and what we need to do. Um, so my my project is based on this really essentially, and it's just, just starting to build the just starting to plant the seeds for this, although I've been, but many seeds are sprouting to some of the work I do with Sarah Jolena Wolcott and her Sequoia Salmon Baya Ecotheology Project, which is this amazing website she has where she teaches all kinds of classes on history and uh, on ritual and storytelling and really reconnecting to roots. Um, the work I do with Sacred Ecology Forum, um, the work I do as a Green Faith Fellow, uh, and this is the work I do as a public intellectual, as a scholar as well. Um, the project is, I'm hoping to be kind of, I'm trying to not use like corporate language. I want to say like incubator, no corporate language here. Like I want it to be a kind of, I was actually 
really to participate in what Paul Kingsnorth is writing about is spaces of uncivilization, <laughs> where he talks to say we have to do our create. We have such immense creative energy. We are literally pouring out creativity at every single moment of the day. We don't realize it. We have to harness this energy to confront, against Larry Rasmussen says, the fault lines of modernity, which are pretty much revealing themselves every day at this point. Um, and think and confront, especially the idea that we're meant to just keep having progress and economic growth, because that's that that game is coming to a conclusion. So how do we imagine the way forward? We have to do this in a way in which we kind of uncivilize ourselves. It doesn't mean we become like it doesn't be. I really hope it doesn't become like the walking dead, <laughs> but, which is, I think, the um, way so many people thought the pandemic was going to go. But no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just like with my partner, I just started to watch Lost. Uh-huh. Like I haven't ever watched that series, and I keep remarking to her like how they're not eating right. each other. It's, it's well, so it's in there. I mean, it did. I think it came out at the beginning of the pandemic, and this is totally off the subject of Hinduism, but it has to do with civilization and what people, what structures people create when their structures are removed. And it's the original story of. Lord of the Flies. Do you know about this? Apparently, yeah. yeah. I mean, for I encourage people to go look it up. There was a good article in the Guardian, probably nine months ago now. And you know, the story we're all told is that without the structures, boys are going to turn on each other, kill each other. and kill each other and turn savage. And the real story is a bunch of kids, Australians, got essentially marooned on an island, I believe. Was it shipwrecked or did a plane crash? They got here and they didn't turn on each other. They developed their own structures and helped each other out and actually survived to be rescued. They didn't end up, you know, going... uh, in the contemporary, in the common usage, they didn't become uncivilized actually, but to go back to uncivilized, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny to me, it was occurring to me while you were talking that what, what's the Latin origin of civilization? It's something along the lines of literally just cities to be citified, to be move into that sort of structure and modern environmentalism. I mean, for listeners that don't know my, one of my past lives was, metaphorically past lives was writing for treehugger.com, which is an environmental website. And so much of, at least at the time, and still to some degree, modern environmentalism is making sustainability cool. Like you don't have to give up anything. You can move into small spaces and high densities in cities. So when I'm hearing become uncivilized, it's like almost moving away from that. Uh, moving away from those ideas, but I don't know if there's anything actually in that, but it was what was popping in my mind when you were talking about. Yeah. But even just, and as I've said, this, this whole horrible ongoing legacy of, of colonization upon these Dharmic traditions and labeling things like idolatry and primitive. And I just, I hate saying the word primitive because it's, but it's, you know, it's the the language that we use. I like should be a slur. Actually it is. Um, But this, you know, but I, I think I, I gained this from Paul Kingsnorth writings amongst other writings, but I too, this is especially something in the Vaishnava tradition. So Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada would talk quite a bit about simple living and high thinking, which actually the etymology of that phrase goes back to Wordsworth. I've learned plain living, high thinking. He got it from Gandhi, Swami Prabhupada did. And he was very, really, and he was inspired by Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi in quite a number of ways. And in quite a number of ways, he wasn't, especially kind of the theology, when it got down to the theology of it. But um this the, the you know the kind of idea of Gandhi's 
the, uh, the ashram, the village style of life. And I know there's a lot of there's various complications that come with that, but there's something that's very attractive about that. And uh, I'm just trying to remember where I read this recently, where I don't know if Gandhi made a kind of formal proposal to Nehru at the moment of independence to say, actually, let's not develop. Let's return back to this basically like network of anticipatory communities or networks, networks of villages. Um, you know, and then, you know, Nehru made the choice and to go in the industrial direction. Um, but there, yeah, so Bhaktivedanta Swami was really inspired by this vision. And this is one of the reasons that we have this kind of uh, ecological emphasis. Um, for, the, for the anticipation project, basically what I'm hoping to do is I want to, you know, I obviously it's a space to share some of my own work, help me you know, build my career as a scholar, but I'm especially hoping and inviting people to share their writings. This is part of what the Uncivilized Project is, as Paul Kingsnorth frames it. It's kind of not necessarily a formal movement, but just as the space where we can anticipate and create and try to figure out what the hell we were going to do uh, in a way that is quite different from approaching it through like big technological solutions or the market or going to Mars, like Elon Musk seems to want to do. So, um, what his work helps me to do is to say we what we think is civilization is actually not what is not the end of history. It's not this ideal perfection we have. We talk about civilization versus the primitive. We are very mixed up. And I just keep going back and saying people who labeled people who worship trees and stones as part of the Vaishnava tradition as primitive got 120 percent wrong. Like that is actually the most elevated theology. That is that is that is what we, if we're going to build a sense of civilization. That is what we need to build our civilization around, not the sense of like, not basically where we're going. And so, part of my project in developing a website, which will be launched in the next couple of weeks, and I'm starting to do some podcast recordings, just kind of simple base, right? Just kind of some good writing, space for creativity, and some interesting conversations. Um, just trying to create. Uh, people I feel who are anticipators, they may or may not label themselves that way. That's how I see them. But um, wanting to just have those conversations because I, I just think, and again, just just really confirming from reading the Dark Mountain Manifesto, Paul Kings North wrote, this is what we have to do. This is the work we have to do. It doesn't mean we have to abandon civilization at the moment, but this is a serious transition going on. We need to be part and all of us continue need to continue to be part of that conversation. That is to me what anticipation is. It's just the work, doing the work of getting back to our roots. One final question here. For other non-Indians who are drawn to Hinduism, do you have any advice on how to engage with the tradition in an authentic, respectful way? Engage with it on its own terms? I think, you know, for example, I'm thinking the person who comes to mind, the kind of hypothetical person is the yoga practitioner who is, uh, you know, has a teacher who uh, may or may, you know, be speaking around concepts that you'll find in the yoga sutras, right? And talking about just, you know, or, or drawing upon concepts of like Ayurveda. That we really have to kind of guide people. I really want to guide people. If you find something interesting that you know comes from Hinduism, don't just stop at your yoga teacher, like really and also try to push your yoga teacher. And again, there are countless yoga teachers who do this well and countless who don't, but um, these concepts, like this is part of a tradition, like Hinduism is a real thing, right? Like this is, this is where I've, there, there are times where 
I've described myself, I might have described myself to this, to you, Matt, in our conversations over the years, as kind of as an ambiguous Hindu, because it's not what I was raised in. And then in the in the academy, this is one of the things that it really is should stop like Hinduism is real. I know it's like it's you don't necessarily find the term in the Vedas and we know all these things and kind of how it has some connections to histories of conquest and whatnot. Nevertheless, it is the way that it is. It is a frame, a very accurate frame, a very truthful frame for how we understand the deep, deep, deep spiritual wisdom of the Indian subcontinent. It is a real thing. It is an ancient tradition. It is super relevant and it is it has contained so much wisdom for basically every challenge we're facing today. So if you find something interesting, you want to learn more about what Dharma means, you know, I would say, especially I want to try to amplify the voices of, again, the scholars who are really indigenous in a sense, you want to be talking uh, as much as some white folks like me might know and continue to try to learn about Hinduism. We want to, again, going to the source, and again, that's not to put the, I don't necessarily want to put the burden on Indian folks to explain Hinduism, but they, Indian people have lived in this tradition in a way that is, represents that source. So you want to try to guide people to amplify Indian scholars, Indian practitioners, yoga scholars, like people who are doing this work seriously, even if they're not seeking some fancy credentials or whatnot but are the real, the real experiencers of the tradition. So to try to understand the experiences originally as accurately as possible from people whose ancestry is part of that tradition and who practice it very deeply. You know, I, I'm still learning. I've been doing this for quite a while as a practitioner, as a scholar, but there's things I learn and unlearn every day. So I might be an okay source for this, but I'm not the best source. And I'm, I'm learning, okay, let me, I'm trying to just to hear the folks who are, this belongs to them. This is, this is where they come from, their ancestries, their histories. They are the carriers of the wisdom, the carriers of Sanatana Dharma, and we need to listen to them. And I know there are no number of complications in terms of politics, history, and it's just, you know, it can feel, it's very difficult. But again, I don't experience difficulties the way that more indigenous scholars too, and all I can do is just try to listen to them and learn from them and try to speak for it and try to, when I do speak, try to speak from a place of support. Um, so, yeah, I just would say, like, it's such a deep tradition and there's ways that you have to try to push through some of the translations <laughs> and some of the ways that it's been distorted. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org donate.